Hello and welcome to The Shindig with Rubicon Heritage and Red River Archaeology. My name is Tanai Jurgensen, and today Jonathan Miller and I sat down for the first of our Meet Our Archaeologist series with Dr. Enda O'Flaherty. Enda is one of our colleagues. Um, you, you you wear a lot of hats, dude. You're you're like an archaeologist. You're a musician. You're a farmer. Jansky, you're, you're making me blush here. Like, uh, take it easy, you know. <laughs> I know, but seriously, like, you're 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 multifaceted beyond the norm for for archaeologists. So it's a, it's a profession that tends to require people to, to be jack of all trades. But um, you're kind of next level. Um, so yeah, you're 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 a musician. You're a farmer. Uh, I'd say you're an explorer. Uh, you're an author. You're a qualified mountain guide, I believe. Uh, uh, you're, yeah. Yeah, you're, you're definitely a researcher. You're a surveyor. You're a husband. You're a geophysicist. And most recently, well, maybe not recently, but you're now a doctor as well, which is very cool. So, yeah, we're, we're, we're looking forward to talking to you about your, your career and your thoughts on archaeology and the profession. So welcome, uh, thanks thank you, for talking to us. Thanks, my name is Jansky. It's, um, it's quite a privilege, I suppose, really, to <clears throat> have two of your colleagues uh, interview you. It's, um, it's very nice. It's, it's, it's nice to think that some of your colleagues would like to hear what you have to, to say about archaeology. So it's an honour. Thanks very much, Jansky. No worries. Well, we're, we're delighted to, to be chatting to you. And it's, it's weird, actually. It's not that often that we get to, to sort of, even though this is virtual, like we're, we're, we're not face-to-face, but... Um, yeah, we don't have a lot of meetings in, in kind of the general day-to-day, so it's good to chat to you from that point of view as well. And like for me, who who has, you know, started in the middle of the pandemic, you know, and you guys were talking about you have like almost like 10 years going back. So for me, it's actually really exciting and to like kind of get to know you almost like through this. So <laughs> my, my first question then is, because I'm not actually sure, what is your exact role at Rubicon? Well, we like to keep that... Uh... Uh, kind of on a need to know basis when I first started at Rubicon in 2012 I was primarily involved with the geodetic survey and uh, geophysics side of things but but also working kind of as an archaeologist too from day to day uh, working on sites excavations the usual kind of stuff that you'll be doing but my main role was in the survey department Um, and since then I've kind of left a lot of the survey and geophysics behind. And if somebody asked me, I just kind of respond with the, the answer. I'm an archaeologist and probably everything that entails. So there's some excavation involved. There's some report writing. Occasionally there's a little bit of survey, a building survey. And all the tasks that are involved with, uh, with being an archaeologist on a day-to-day basis, which can be varied and uh, uh, always very interesting I think and then but so what made you get into archaeology like what was what was the allure um uh, how did I get into archaeology so I guess when I was doing my leaving cert um I initially applied for um, electronic uh, <clears throat> electronic engineering in Galway and I did a year of electronic engineering and I was quite young at the time when I went to university first and after doing a year a year there, I realised that I didn't um, I didn't really like it, and so I thought I would leave 
and reapply for college and choose something that would be very much the opposite end of the spectrum to engineering. And so with that in mind, I landed on heritage studies. So I did a degree in heritage studies in GMIT in, in Galway. After finishing that, uh, I would have finished that. And it was around the time that the economy was in, in very, very good. Well, I wouldn't say in very, very good shape, but it was, it was, there was a lot of um, construction work on at the time. And after finishing university, one of the avenues that a lot of people from heritage studies were, were going down was going out to work on archaeological sites. And that's what I did. So after finishing my degree, I went out. I think I first worked with Octra, who were based, who were actually based in, in, in Cork, I think. And my first excavation was in Ballinasloe in County Galway. And I thoroughly enjoyed working in archaeology. I really enjoyed the thrill of, of kind of moving from site to site and we were traveling all over the country, seeing lots of different parts of the country that I probably wouldn't have seen if I wasn't uh, moving around working all the time. After spending, I think, probably two or three years working, two years, I think it was working um, on various uh, sites around the country, I thought, well, I don't actually technically have an archaeology degree. So I went back to university at that point to do a postgraduate diploma in archaeology, which was a, a one-year a one-year course that was very similar to the degree in archaeology, where you do second year and third year of a degree, but you do it together in one year. And after doing which that... Which year was that? Uh, that was 2008, I would say. 2007, I think. Can I, can I ask, though, as someone who did all school first and then got yeah. in, and then got into the practical side that you know of the work like why yeah. why would you decide to go back if you had like a really good career kind of going without needing the education I probably felt that, that I was kind of limited a little bit because my degree was in heritage studies so my knowledge of academic archaeology would have been pretty limited it wouldn't have been an absolute necessity but I guess I might have felt like probably some sort of imposter syndrome in some ways, because a lot of the people that I was working with would have had archaeology degrees and I had heritage studies degree. And I thought, I, you know, if I want to maybe at some point go on and get a, an archaeological license, director's license, then proper degree in archaeology would probably be suitable. And that's why I went back, really, that I didn't want to be limited, maybe if, if I was going to try and progress in, in, in the career. At that time, did you have an eye on possibly doing a doctorate at some point? Like, was that on your radar or... No, no, not at all. No, That's not cool. that. That didn't come to mind, I think, until after I'd done the postgraduate diploma. And I think the second time that I went back that year that I went back for an extra year of college, my experience in college was probably a lot, a lot different to, um, to my undergraduate career. I was a lot more involved with what was going on around, around the university and really much more engaged, I think. I was much more engaged with the studies, too. I would say that for my undergrad, undergraduate, you're quite young when you're doing your undergraduate and there's a lot of things that can distract you and whatever. So your studies, even though you're there for your studies, there might not always be your primary focus. Whereas the second time I went back, I was much more focused on, on, on learning. And I think because of that, it might have focused my attention a little bit towards what else can be done in the university. So how much of a gap was there between your undergraduate and your postgraduate? It would have been less than 10 years, was it? Oh, yeah. No, um, it was three years, maybe, I suppose. So not, not much. But, yeah, you'd feel you've matured quite a lot in that time period from stopping being an undergraduate and <laughs> going out into the workplace and stuff. Well, you know, saying that I matured makes a lot of assumptions there. Um, <laughs> so uh, maybe a little bit more mature, but I, I wouldn't say that I, I, I doubt that I've even matured at this point. So. Well, yeah, I'd hope not. It's a gradual and potentially never-ending process. 
so then so then what made you decide to do a PhD like how did you did you fall into it was it an active choice how did you choose this specific form of torture I, I didn't initially choose it I initially started an MLIT in in Galway but um, after I think about six years uh, six months in the MLIT uh, there was an opportunity to to get funding for a PhD and you could uh, bump your MLIT up to, to a PhD study so I thought, well, I'll give it a shot. I applied for, for funding from the, the College of Arts in Galway and largely thanks to, to my supervisor, Professor Fitzpatrick, Elizabeth Fitzpatrick. The funding application w- with her help in, in basically organising it, it was successful and it was great. Absolutely fantastic, delighted. Which meant uh, my MLIT changed to a PhD, um, which meant I was going to spend longer in college at that point, and which meant that I would probably miss the worst of the downturn so there was a practical side to it there was a uh, kind of a practical element of surviving in archaeology while there was no archaeological work and then if you're going to do that and if you can also progress your education at the same time I thought well this is really what it wasn't like a pure intention always to to do a PhD but because of circumstances the opportunity arrived uh, arised and and um, it just seemed like a a good idea really to be honest like I, I certainly wasn't here during the crash, but I have heard horror stories that there's just did the work just dried up all of a sudden. Yeah, over a period of maybe about six months or so, it just completely turned on its head. So then, getting into your PhD itself, it's called Archaeological Watermarks: Settlement, Landscape, and Seasonal Flooding in Historical Ireland. So it was done at the National University of Ireland, Galway. It's about turlocks. So yep. w- what exactly are turlocks? <laughs> Chapter one. <laughs> <laughs> Chapter one, what are turlocks? Um, turlocks are um, seasonal lakes that exist in, in karst landscapes. Not all karst landscapes. The name turlock is, is specific to Ireland and they're, they're largely concentrated on, on the west side of the country, we say west of the River Shannon, although there are outliers outside of that too. And when I say they're seasonal lakes, they fill with, with heavy rainfall and they fill through a groundwater source called an estival. So they flood from, from, the, from the ground up rather than water draining into them from the surface. And they're generally lakes in winter and usually green uh, open areas in the summertime, but depending on the rainfall, of course. So if you have a very wet summer, you can, they can flood during the summer. If you have a very dry winter, they can dry out completely. Presumably they influence the landscape and people's interaction with it and that was was that your kind of angle on it yeah what i was looking at was if the these um seasonal lakes had any kind of influence or, or use influence on or use by past uh, communities to see how they interacted with that this landscape if the if the landscape kind of impacted on settlement or how these seasonal lakes might have been used by, by communities in the past and what I found, I guess, is there's a couple of interesting things about them, really. I guess from a practical sense, when, when rainwater passes through the, through the bedrock, the karst um, bedrock, which is, which is limestone, which is calcium carbonate, uh, rainwater dissolves some of the calcium in, in the rock uh, and it becomes super saturated in the groundwater. So when the groundwater reaches the surface, it deposits the calcium carbonate on the grasslands that, it, that it's flooding. And so when the flood water waters receive, you have positive calcium carbonate. You can often see it if you've seen a turlock after it's shortly after it's dried out, you can see that all the grass has turned kind of a, a grayish white kind of color. 
So this kind of increases the density of herbage and really encourages kind of grass growth. Many of them, the, the shallower turlocks made quite useful um, springtime grazing grounds. So we find that a lot of the those turlocks are kind of retained within, they're not drained, they're, they're not... Uh, Although it's the case now at, the, at this point in our history, at the early modern period, a lot of these turlocks have now, now been drained. Many of them were left undrained, but a lot of kind of settlement around them where, where these, these turlocks were used quite often for grazing of, of cattle in, in springtime, um, almost part of the, the, the landscape management system. Um, and then other interesting things about them, there was seemed to be a lot of evidence for for use of them as kind of communal gathering spaces, that these were landscapes that were during the summertime in particular, we're open with no, usually with no boundaries, whatever. And we have a lot of references in the annals to affairs and Enoch and um, various different kind of communal events, and even battles taking place on, on Turlock floodplains during the summertime. So that's two elements, I guess. What was the methodology that, how did you identify the Turlocks? How did you identify the activity around the Turlocks? Like, how did, how did you go about this? Well, I guess, first of all, the the database of turlocks. At the time I began my research, there was already a database that had been generated by the Geological Survey of Ireland of, if I remember correctly, it was 307 turlock sites. So the locations of these were known, um, but there are more. There, there, there's there's a great deal more than 307. Even by the by the time I finished my work, a new paper had been published by Waldron, I think, in, in, and their database had 400 and 450-odd, maybe. 420 or 450 I don't remember exactly but um so there are databases out there already of 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 their locations so that was that was what I would have used to to identify kind of my study areas and then once I had identified the locations a lot of the work was kind of trawling through the annals and looking for any references at all to to Turlocks which was kind of difficult because Turlock is also a it's it's a surname and it's a first name so trying to fish out the references to actual turlocks rather than than people who were called turlock was um, a little bit frustrating sometimes. Um, any references in any any kind of early sources at all and what they had to say about the those different environments, how those environments were were used or perceived. And then trawling through map sources, the first edition ordnance survey map, luckily they had marked in the lines of inundation, so the, the, the lines of the of the limits of the flood of the Turlock into the first edition ordnance survey. And I would have used that ordnance survey map, often geo, geo-referencing the uh, first edition ordnance survey and uh, marking out the line of inundation, the, the maximum kind of flood limit of the Turlock, because those maps were compiled in the 1830s, 1840s. And since they were compiled, a lot of the Turlocks that I would have been looking at would have been drained and didn't exist anymore. So they helped to identify the the areas, my, my study areas too. The main data chapter within the thesis was a case study of Turlock Moor in County Galway, which was the largest Turlock in in Ireland. It was was it nine kilometers long, um, probably up to three kilometers wide at um, at its widest point. So this is an area that would have flooded um, in winter time. So these are it's, these are huge then, because I was kind of that, I was kind of imagining yeah. like ponds. That is the biggest example, Turlock Moor, that is located in County Galway. So it would have been located between the village of Turlock Moor, which is east of Clare Galway in County Galway, and it would have stretched up to just south of Tune. Yeah, so when that when that when that was in full flood, 
it would have covered an area probably in length between 10 and 12 kilometers and, and width up to three kilometers maybe only a few hundred meters at as narrowest point depending on the, the landscape um so there are like substantial features within the landscape but that turlock does not exist anymore that turlock is now the river clare which was canalized in the 18 i think maybe the canalization finished in the 1860s or so so that turlock doesn't exist and that that whole landscape has changed you can see if you look at aerial photographs of where that turlock existed the change in the field patterns from the kind of more organic kind of field pattern distribution that follows the topography and then when you get to where the turlock existed it's just those very typical um, linear field boundaries that you might associate with the, the land commission or striping of land so yeah it, it's it's kind of crazy to think that that you can drain such a large feature like that and, and I guess when you're looking at the landscape you have to kind of keep in mind that the landscape that you're looking at today around there for at least half of the year half of it would have been underwater and naturally that's going to have an impact on settlement distribution and also land use in, in the area. How, how would one go about draining a turlock presumably if they're fed from beneath like are, are there cave systems uh, do they have to block that up? There are there's some interesting examples of, of things that happened around there Turlock Moor is an interesting example because it, fl it flooded from ground sources from estivals located along the Turlock floor. And then in summertime, the Turlock would drain. But the River Clare was flowing from the north to the south through the basin of the Turlock. By the, when, it, when it got to the northern end of the Turlock, it actually disappeared into a swallow hole around Curafin and then reappeared um, south of the village of Turlock Moor. So it was travelling underground. What they did was basically dig out a big drainage channel between Curafin and Turlock Moor to prevent the, the turlock from, from flooding when, when there was too much rainwater. Interesting things that have happened. So I think it was around Abinok Moy, which is to the east of Turlock Moor, there was another uh, river which, which fed into, which now feeds into the, it's a tributary of the River Clare, the Abbott River. I think it was during the, sometime in, maybe in the 40s or 50s, they were trying to dredge that river and they blasted. The, the river existed, they were trying to dredge the, the base, they were blasting the base with dynamite and they blew a hole into a cave system that they didn't know about and the river disappeared. And I think to solve the problem, they had to fill that hole back up with concrete. That's crazy. I, I, yep. One thing I was wondering from, like with Turlocks and the Estivals, the, the yep. feeding systems, are there, has anyone ever done or has there been studies into, like are there votive offerings? Are they, are they generally, like is there an opening that you could kind of go down into when they're not filled up or is that all would they always be a bit wet i mean I, I have no idea it's kind of i suppose that's kind of like a how long is a piece of string kind of question they're generally wet kind of a damp all year round when it first begins to get you when you first begin to get like heavy rain and the turret first begins to flood there can be enough water pressure that it will actually create like almost like a small geyser out of these estivals they're, they can be quite impressive you know they're not something that you typically um uh, come across whatever so they they are small openings but there are larger examples not per, perhaps of, of estivals but say for example the Gort River near Gort in in County Galway where that river flows under underground it flows into a little um into a, a doe line which is a collapse feature associated with karst land, landscape and disappears underground um that's not an estival technically although it's the same kind of solution mechanics that's at, at work so you have kind of two examples there. One could be, you know, something just the size of your fist. The water is coming out of like a nest like that. And then you have something like the Gore River where an entire river can, can disappear into a hole the size of, I don't know, the size of a car, I guess, you know. Is there any kind of like 
Turlock tourism? Like, can you, is there a calendar that you could follow to say, <laughs> I want to go and see Old Faithful or whatever, see them? Gosh, I, I had no idea that they did that. So it was really cool. It'd be kind of worth a look. Turlock tourism. I hadn't thought about that. Um, uh, you see, I'm here for you. Thank you. Uh, I'll get on that straight away. Not that I know of, except for, you know, maybe some people who are enthusiastic, I guess. A lot of them will be involved in academia who, who might, um, um, know those things but well it's like do you get associated with turlocks like what are the earliest um, concentrations of human activity around them like do you have mesolithic people or the mesolithic evidence is kind of limited to a single flint blade i think it was from from county galway and there's kind of limited neolithic evidence but by the time of the bronze age because you're talking about a unique kind of hydrology around around the Turlock floor. You're getting quite a, a few burnt mounds occurring um, on the fringes of Turlocks because they're they're suitable wet environments. And there's kind of limited limited evidence as well that that maybe some of these sites were were seasonally used. Um, I think that's debated by some people at the moment. If it is the case that they were seasonally used and used during the summer and autumn time, then what you're having is would say a, a kind of a reflection of this idea of like an open space that's available uh, for gathering in in the summer and autumn time and perhaps maybe the burnt mounds are kind of indications of maybe some sort of communal gathering but that's all quite debatable because burnt mounds have all sorts of uses that's it in terms of the prehistoric that's kind of limited iron age evidence as well by the early medieval period we have a fantastic example from county galway called ormbrishti which is if you translate that place name is the, the broken river a really lovely burial site within an enclosure in in county galway and then during the, the medieval period you find uh, particularly around turlock moor uh, around my study area, I found quite a number of tower houses that were constructed on the, on the fringe of the Turlock. And these were very interesting because we have examples like Curfin, Grange Castle, and I think it was on the edge of Turlock Martin. The name escapes me just now. But these tower houses were are built on plinths, like areas that have been raised up above the, the flood line. So they, they when, when the Turlock floods, they have an artificial island on the tower houses constructed on to keep it above the flood waters. So they're obviously, they're aware of the flooding regime they could build their tower house further away away from the turlock regime but they seem to be engaging in it in some way and kind of they're they're, they're not reluctant to to stay away from it they're, they're, they seem to be demonstrating some sort of like uh, maybe sort of maybe maybe a territorial claim on the on the turlock floodplain i think and um, that's turlock moor again so that's the very large turlock if you imagine an area of land that's possibly 12 kilometers long and up to three kilometers wide that's a very useful resource for grazing, particularly in the springtime. Maybe that is a resource that they want to lay claim to. Did, are turlocks generally freshwater or saltwater, or can they be both? And do you get fish in them? Very occasionally you get fish in them, but that would be only in a, in a, in a case where there's a permanent water body. So not a turlock that drains out completely because it wouldn't be able to sustain a fish. Are they saltwater or fresh? I, I, saltwater I, fresh. I remember you telling me something <laughs> before about there being links to the sea from some of them. Is that... There, there is, yes. So they're all freshwater, except for one example near Kinvar in County Galway. Again, that's on karstic limestone. I think it's, you're, you're, you're in the burn lowlands around there, but there is a, it's five kilometers from, from the sea, but there is a connection, almost like a, I guess like a, um, a, a karstic flow underground between that turlock and the sea. And so the turlock, which is five kilometers inland, it's kind of north, uh, south of Kinvara in County Galway, 
rises and falls with the tide. It's about six hours behind the tide as well. So you have the, the pressure from the tide coming in, pushing water up the, the karstic flow. And about six hours later, it reaches the turlock and the turlock rises with the tide. But it's obviously six hours behind because it takes a while for that water pressure to build. So yeah, you have a, um, a, um, a turlock inland that is rising and falling with the tide. Which is an amazing, amazing landscape feature. Yeah. So, like, what's next? Did it raise questions that you would like to answer yourself, or that you could take further? Yeah. Well, I hope to maybe get something published. I think in 2022, there's a couple of different avenues I can go down with the thesis. But one that we haven't really talked about yet is turlocks in the cognitive landscape and and how turlocks lands were perceived and floodlands were perceived in in the past. We've kind of touched on the idea that they may have been used for as communal spaces and places of gathering. And there seems to be a significant amount of evidence for that from a lot of kind of folklore evidence and, and references in the annals. So that's something that I would I would really like to explore. And that's the kind of, although I'm an archaeologist, it's something that I'm actually quite interested in is landscape and how people perceive landscape and the importance of landscape to people and the meaning of landscape and how meaning is kind of tangled up in all sorts of associations and place names and, and um like an area that I that I would I would like to get into. How are turlocks perceived then in the folklore or in the annals? What conclusions did you reach there? They seem to be quite often tied into almost like the folk religion, I suppose. Really, some of them can have associations with curative properties, or it could be considered to have the waters considered can be considered to have curative properties and associated with different feast days uh, throughout the year. Sometimes there's a, a tradition I think associated with Lunas uh, originally. Um, I think Mickle, is Michaelmas around that time as well. I'm not not hundred percent certain, but uh, the practice of swimming cattle in, in Turlock waters as um, as a to protect the cattle from disease throughout the years it's like a like a folk traditional there's elements like that that i would like to explore and document and kind of put together just as a i guess it's almost just like a record really and, and, and a compilation of the different associations with with, with tr- trilog landscapes but yeah that, that's kind of the area that i would like to put in. I, I i have a view that if you draw out these different associations with the landscape i i, I do a bit of work with place names also um, recording minor place names if you can draw out these place names and associations that it, it kind of helps people make connections with landscape which i mean literally that the physical environment around people uh, and perhaps become a little bit more engaged i think it's something that can be used to encourage people to maybe take better care of the landscape that's around them and kind of have a little bit more consideration for for its value it's really cool why would you choose to continue in commercial archaeology over continuing in academia? I thoroughly enjoy working in in, in commercial archaeology, whereas I, I don't know that I would thoroughly enjoy the world of academia. You have to be made of steel, I think, to succeed in, in that world. It's just highly competitive. It seems to me to be awfully stressful and um, takes a long time to get any kind of reward from it. And, you might never get that reward, you know, because it's so competitive. Um, yeah, I, I would choose commercial archaeology because it's a place that I can I can make a career in. I, mean, I don't have to abandon any of my academic pursuits. I suppose there is room to room to kind of have a better work life balance. I think in in commercial archaeology compared to academia. I feel like the company that we work for is very good about encouraging its commercial archaeologists to further their studies and, and continue their research 100 percent, yeah absolutely um i'd like to take this opportunity to thank rubicon actually for they when i was finishing up my phd they, they 
very much facilitated, I think, time off here and there to for different things that I had to do. So a big thank you to them. Thank you. On behalf of the company. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. How how do you find a balance between, you know, your commercial archaeology work, your research interests, and you know, as we said earlier, not going crazy staring at old things all day. I don't know what to say about that, except I guess like in your early career can be a little bit difficult. I think I described after finishing university with an an exciting couple of years kind of traveling around the country and and working in different areas on different excavations. And you're you're, you're much younger at that point. You know, you have a lot more energy and there's quite a thrill in, in kind of moving around and kind of having different adventures every couple of weeks or whatever. I think maybe as you get a little bit older, I don't think I'd describe myself as as old just yet, but um, I'm not as young as I used to be. Um, there's probably more of a desire to to settle down, and occasionally that can be difficult in in archaeology. So yeah, how do you how do you find like a balance, I suppose, between your work life and your and everything else that you do in life? Because you have to be uh, flexible to a, a degree. There's a lot of things that over the years I must kind of sacrificed because work would have there would have been requirements for work that wouldn't facilitate other things. You know, like you might want to do evening courses just to kind of further education or whatever, whatever you might, anything from motorcycle maintenance to jewelry making or something like that that most people would do as evening classes and then you might sign up for these evening classes and you find that oh well I actually have to be at the opposite of the country on, on a given Tuesday or Thursday night so that can be difficult but how do you find a solution to that I, what I find is that, that as you kind of move probably further along in your career you probably end up not working on on site as as much um so things do improve in in, the, in that way and then if you are working for a specific company for a longer period of time quite often the archaeology companies can become they could be quite a, like a accommodate they, they will be accommodating and try and help you out i think i think most archaeology companies realize that if they have good staff that they should um try and help them to have like a better work-life balance because you, you want to kind of prevent a turnover of if you have good staff you want to keep them so i think that most archaeology companies will kind of help you out in in, in your career as, as you move on a settled position as possible where you're free to kind of um, have as normal a life as possible rather than being in Donegal on Monday and Wexford on Tuesday and Galway on Wednesday that kind of thing does that make any sense it does and I think it it is uh, I I doubt it's unique to archaeology as a a profession but it's definitely something that I think is becoming more important both to employers and employees and just recognizing that that there has to be that balance and you have to be able to develop yourself and it makes you a better employee as well I think that's that's yeah, um yeah. it's it, you know it, 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 there's no denying it yeah. and it's just a matter of putting in place um facilities to make that work and it, i think it, it is hard in archaeology because of the nature of the the work you know it's 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 contracts and that's always going to be really awkward and it, it is yeah I don't, I don't think there's any archaeologists left that don't love archaeology it's it's um it's not an easy career to to stick at you know it's um yeah, and I think there's no to know what the right word would be, but you know, it's like I, I can completely understand when people leave archaeology. It's it's really sad when it happens, and you kind of think, you know, I wish the, the, the career was different, that it was easier to to stick at it. But yeah, I don't know what the solution is long term. It's um, yeah, no, I, I think you're you're right. I think, um, and I don't think like there's no point in your archaeologist career probably that that you will you will always need a certain degree of flexibility, even just a small degree of flexibility to maybe travel somewhere or do something like that but I don't know if there's any young archaeologists out there listening uh, I have found personally that it, that it improves over the time yeah I think that's it I think that certainly as a, as a youngster I mean I, I 
thoroughly enjoyed my time as a young archaeologist. It was, yeah, that kind of sense of adventure and not know where you're going to yep. be from week to week and traveling yep. about and the crack being absolutely mighty. Um, <laughs> and that does, that does kind of, I, I, I don't know, yeah, it, it does perpetuate. Like we've had a lot of fun projects over the years and I'd always look forward in that respect to going on field work with you from, you know, just, it, 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 yeah, I don't know, it's a, it's a different, different pace, but yeah, yeah. Keeping that balance is, is hard. Should we move into the final quick fire round? Quick fire round. Okay. Okay. I'll be as quick as I can. <laughs> what is your favorite monument? My favorite archaeological site in Ireland is uh, Dunangasa. Where is that? Uh, the Iron Islands. Yeah, it's the big hill fort that's been kind of cut in half. Well, it's not half, but like bisected by the cliff falling away from it. Another kind of coastal erosion site. Isn't it? Um, I think I find, I find it absolutely spectacular. The thing that really strikes me about it is that it is perched at the end of the world. The, when, when that monument was built, that was the end of the world. That was the literal, that's where the world stopped. And it just sits at the end of it. It's very cool. I've never visited it. it I'd love to. Field trip. Oh, yeah, it's wonderful. <laughs> what's your favorite site that you've excavated favorite site that i've excavated quick fire and quick fire quick fire damn it i should i thought of this yesterday um <laughs> what did i think of yesterday favorite site that i've excavated i don't know if it's favorite site that i've excavated but the very first excavation that i worked on was um a very nice ring fort uh, lockdown one i think it was in county Galway, and um i really enjoyed that because it could have been just that it was my first excavation and um that every day was like a, a, a day of learning and it had a bit of everything in it too i think the top layers were like a vernacular house so when the vernacular house was removed the the kind of there was no bank of the ring fort that had survived so it was all ditches and i think i found a rotary quern in in a pit which had been cut into one of the the, the backfill ditches which was kind of a bit strange then there was a burial um there were two uh, iron working pits so it, it, it was like the, the perfect the perfect kind of first site to um to excavate because it had an, um, like an awful lot of stuff an awful lot of stuff really great diversity so would the cornstone be your favorite find or my favorite find it's yeah i think it would be actually yeah yeah i think i was listening to the previous podcast with the lady from cherish i can't remember her first name sandra sandra yeah and you asked her what was your favorite artifact rather than find are you calling me out is that correct yes I, I asked her what her favorite artifact was but i did mean like what she found personally you meant what she had found personally yeah okay okay what's your favorite That's artifact my favorite artifact <laughs> you want to answer that i can tell <laughs> is it a baculum no it's not my favorite artifact is actually place names um artifacts of the landscape oh, nice yes i was thinking that when i was listening to her her podcast sandra's podcast and i was thinking well what would, what would be my favorite artifact i think those those place names that are minor place names that are preserved kind of in the locality are among my favorite artifacts to be perfectly honest even though they're not physical they they are um they tell a lot about the landscape and they tell a lot about how people have um over generations kind of extraordinarily long memories of, of things that have happened in the landscape it's just absolutely incredible uh, can i ask you this next one uh, what's your funniest moment in the trenches because <laughs> i've had oh. a contender for this but i know we can't talk about it here <laughs> oh my goodness um well i can't tell you the funniest moment and you know why i can't tell you the funniest moment what's your second funniest moment in the trenches? <laughs> what's a, a family friendly funny moment a family friend, friend. My family would uh, love the, the first story. 
comments anyway. Yeah, no okay. comments. Uh, funniest moment in the trenches. Uh, oh yeah, this is quite good. It's funny and weird, extraordinarily weird. I was working on a hill fort in, in County Galway. It was a Mockney, I think was the name of the, the diamond. Uh, within, the, within the hill fort, there were a number of, of ring forts, later ring forts or whatever. And the ring forts had been excavated, I think, during the summertime. But the, the ditches had been left open and we were working in wintertime. There was a, a section within the ring fort that had to be recorded. But the whole thing was entirely flooded. The ditches were flooded, flooded up to the top. So we had to pump out the, the ditches in order to get in to record this section. So uh, got the pump, started pumping and we're emptying, emptying out the ditch a good, you know, like uh, more than a metre deep and probably more than two metres wide. So it's a good bit of pumping to do. As the water came down to the bottom of the, the ditch, the Ringfort ditch, there was this movement like going along the ditch, along the bottom. So there's only like maybe about a few inches of water left or whatever. And I th- you can see it like moving up and down the trenches, up and down the trenches. I think, what on earth is that? So it drained it down till it, it was like draining down till it was only like, you know, an inch left maybe. And um, it was only in the corner, whatever. And this thing was like stuck in the water down the corner. And uh, so I picked it up and it was a fish. <laughs> it was a fish. In a trench. In a trench. And there, was, there were no rivers. There were no lakes anywhere nearby at all. I have no idea where this living fish came from. Um, absolutely that's the most bizarre thing. thing unless a bird like dropped it from its beak or something sea and it landed yeah i don't know what it was but it was a fish i don't know what like it's, it's like a 20 pound salmon or something <laughs> no it was like a perch or a roach or something like that um, so, it was a salmon. so that was absolutely bizarre i found a, a fish it was so wet that winter that was a very very wet winter also but, uh, the ditches were full of fish could it have been like even more flooded, and maybe if like could it have been flooded higher and it swam? No, there's no. Yeah, you said there's no river nearby. There's no, there's that's a mystery. There, were, there was nothing nearby. No. Oh. I was afraid that was going to be like a horror movie where it was like an anaconda or something. <laughs> <laughs> Just a fish. Just, okay. What's that X Files one where there's a guy that's like a human fluke worm? I remember being terrified <laughs> of that. So like that would be just nightmarish. Yeah. So then, final question. Mm-hmm. it could be one of two it's either where do you want to dig next or where is your dream site to dig uh, where do I want to where is my dream site to dig where would I really love to dig Car come on in County Clare I think would be it's been excavated before in the 1930s I'm not too sure if the discovery program have done anything there since um, as part of the Harvard expedition, I think in the 19, 1931, maybe, um, it's a really, really wonderful site. Are you familiar with Cahokwan? It is a cliff edge fort. It's almost like a, it's almost like a promontory fort, maybe trivalent stone enclosures. I think the inner enclosure probably is about five metres in width and parts of it probably survive to a height of about three or four metres. So they're concentric kind of semicircular fortifications and it's on the edge of a ravine so it's a, a sharp cliff face on one side and then there's a ravine down the bottom and then another sharp cliff face on the other it's a really really dramatic wonderful uh location in the burn and I'd, I'd love to have a poke around in there and see 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 what what there is i just googled it while you were talking i'm looking at it there it looks amazing yeah, yeah. um and then there's a turlock nearby as well so very cool <laughs> i gotta have a turlock yeah oh yeah 
I, I think that's it. Unless Jonska, you have any more questions, or no. and uh, you have something you're dying to tell the the world. Um, so you get a plug no. for your book. Did you write a book, Enda? It did. It was an author. Deserted Schoolhouses of Ireland. It's a very good read. It's been it's been out a few years. We're not, this isn't like this isn't the reason of the podcast. We're like, Enda, plug your book. Come on, talk. And he's like, yeah. oh, him asking us. But uh, yeah. it's a great book. This is other side. Well, if you're interested in urbex and kind of urban exploration, well, this is more like rurex. This is rural, rural, <clears throat> rural ex- exploration. I, I did a kind of text and photography book. And the photographs are of the schoolhouses that have been deserted around the countryside in Ireland. And that was with the Collins Press. It's it's now with Gill Publishing, I think. How many schools did you visit? Well, 200 or so, 200 or something like that. And you did that, that was entirely on your own time as well. Yeah, but um, yeah, but that was over probably about four years. I did that. It's really cool and beautiful photography as well. Amazing. So it's Schoolhouses of Ireland. Deserted schoolhouses. Uh, deserted schoolhouses. Yeah. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to plug that. You're welcome. <laughs> Where can you get it, Enda? You can get it from Kenny's.ie. Do you have any social media or anything that you'd like anyone, like if anyone was interested in learning more about you or following your antics and uh, activities? There's a Facebook page for the, the school's website. Uh, well, I, I have a website actually, endoflaherty.com. That's mainly for the urbex um and deserted schools photography uh that's been really interesting talking to you and thanks so much for for giving us your time and um well thanks, we're, we're um, on the clock so <laughs> it's <yeah. great. laughs> i think i think we, we gave it an accurate yeah cool and uh, it's been absolutely fascinating and wonderful to have you on <laughs> yeah thanks so much for talking Thank to you. us don't giggle <laughs> no well, it's very um You've all been very kind. Thank you very much. That's very nice of you.